Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome to No Limits, the Mitrap Podcast. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm good. It's almost Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to you, Chris. Thank you. You have a beautiful family, two wonderful children. I, I really hope to see everyone again soon sometime. Yes, I, uh, I'm looking forward to Sunday. Probably going to be golfing. That's my one treat. Just want to say shout out to all the dads out there. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like books like we do. You know what makes a great present? A good book. <laughs> you could choose the new Kyle Mills book um, that came out last year or you know, pre-order your copy of the new Brad Thor book or any of your favorite books. I just want to give a quick shout out to my father. Uh, thank you for being a great role model, a really good friend, and you know, an excellent dad. And I love you. Shout out to all the dads out there, including my own as well. He was a Navy veteran, served during the Vietnam era on the USS Biddle. Every year with the Boy Scouts, I remember we would go on a camping trip to stay overnight on a battleship, the USS Massachusetts. It was like my dad's playground. <laughs> he would, like a little kid, get so excited. He could have been the tour guide. He has a toy figure of R. Lee Ermey. <laughs> and every morning, I remember he would blast over this intercom in our house to wake up my brother and I. Reveille, 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 all hands heave to. The smoking lamp is lit now, reveille. <laughs> I mean, I got that burned, seared into my memory. That's it's like funny. A, a, I, was, I was in full metal jacket just waking up, you know. I was 10 years old. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I never knew that. You never told me that story. That's funny. <laughs> so for our Twitter roundup, Ryan L., you can find him on Twitter at OwlsFan954. He was the winner of some rap trivia. Referring to a scene in Transfer of Power, we asked, you walk into a bar with Mitch Rapp. Better yet, you walk into the chairman of the Joint Chiefs office. What's Rapp drinking? He guessed it. Booker's bourbon. So he sent a sticker out to Ryan. He was the first listener to tweet the answer to us. That's another good Father's Day gift, some bourbon. Indeed, indeed. Also, shout out to Kashif1307 on Twitter, who also won a sticker for getting a trivia question right. Bandar Abbas was the city in Iran targeted in White House Down, and he was the first one to tell us that. It was the city where we first meet Mitrap on the streets of Iran about to take down Farah Harut. So congratulations to those two on winning our stickers. We will do another sticker giveaway on Twitter as we read the third option in July. But what are we covering today, Chris, on this show? We're going to be geeking out a little bit. Something that, you know, you're a history buff. I, I am along for the ride with you. Um, but today <laughs> uh, we're going to be diving, doing a deep dive into the history of the real presidential transfer of power by examining further the 25th Amendment. So in the novel, immediately after the terrorists take the White House, General Flood from the Pentagon declares, and I quote, it's obvious that President Hayes is not in a position to discharge his duties as commander in chief. So according to the 25th Amendment, the powers of the president of the, U the U.S. have transferred to Vice President Baxter until such time as President Hayes may resume his duties. It has been informed that the majority of the cabinet has already agreed to this. So the vice president automatically assumes authority as the commander-in-chief. I don't know if you did a great General Flood uh, voice there. Can we get that again with uh, some, some gruffy, you know, some scruff? All right, all right, let me... Let me... Channel, channel your inner Ermy. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
actually the the audiobook i listened to had a really good voice for general flood yeah uh oh yeah it scared the jesus out of me it's obvious the president <laughs> i can't even do it <laughs> No, no, but what that line shows is what would happen under the 25th Amendment, as you know, President Hayes is safe, but inside the bunker, and the terrorists have taken over the White House, does he still have the powers of commander-in-chief? Right. Well, they transfer to the vice president, Baxter, and towards the end of the book, due to the heroics of Rapp and Anna Reilly and Milt Adams, they're able to reestablish communication via radio, even as the president is still locked away in the bunker. So the question becomes, can the president now supersede the vice president and retake his duties as commander in chief? And the ultimate consequence of that would be that President Hayes would order the FBI hostage rescue team to move in. And so Stansfield at this point states, sir, you are the president. The powers of your office were transferred for the sole reason that we could not communicate with you. That is no longer the case. General Flood and I are going to take our orders from you. If you feel that it's absolutely imperative to inform the vice president and the speaker of the house that you are once again able to discharge your duties, we can do that in the minutes just prior to the raid. You know, they're basically saying, you're our president, we'll listen to you now that we have communication. Well, is that legal? I know, that's really interesting to think about, like what, if that was to happen, you know. It's something similar to that we, we I guess we kind of touched on in the movies because that directly happens in uh, Olympus has fallen, uh, not I guess, and also in White House Down. I hope, hopefully, we'll clarify this when we break this down um, to see what would actually happen. In both those movies, we actually see swearing in ceremonies with the right. hand on the Bible and the, taking the oath to swear in a new acting president. Uh, in the book, we don't get that. Someone just like walk around carrying a Bible. <laughs> it, uh, that's they got to be ready, right? Like some naval officer, like you, it was always a naval officer in the movie. Like, is is there some guy who's just that is the Bible in case you have to like swear to president? I don't know. Probably. I not, want, I wonder if someone on the Joint chief staff just that's that's their designated role. I, I don't know. I, I would imagine it's the military. Well, that's what we're going to talk about here today, and so. We want to ask if this scene from Transfer of Power, what Vince Flynn has written for us, how that would compare with the, the legal framework that's spelled out in the Constitution and the 25th Amendment. So let's get right. into it. So what is the 25th Amendment? It is the amendment about presidential disability and succession. It was ratified in Congress on February 10th, 1967. It was a quote-unquote true amendment in that it didn't just add to something, it actually changed or superseded a previously written part of Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution about presidential succession. So the paragraph in Article 2, Section 1 read, the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability of both the president and vice president, declaring what officer shall then act as president and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or the president shall be elected. So, Mike, what does that mean? Well, you get different terms and, and reasons that a president can lose their power. And the clearest are death and resignation. You know, pretty clear terms. Both in history have happened, though resignation only happened once. So here it's pretty clear that in case of removal from the office due to death or resignation, the vice president takes over. But the language of the original constitution also says in case of disability. 
or inability. It uses both the words disability and inability. For a lot of our history, that was undefined. And so what does that mean legally? And who can determine presidential inability? You know, what happens to a president who is temporarily or permanently incapacitated? They are alive, so death doesn't apply. They have not willingly resigned. That does not apply. And, you know, as a living document, the Constitution needed more interpretation. And by 1967, we would get that in the 25th Amendment. But uh, that concern goes back to the Constitutional Convention. Originally in 1787, there's uh, a record of Delegate John Dickinson of Pennsylvania asking, what is the extent of the term disability? Right. So back then they were questioning the same thing. Yeah, there's no other, there's no answer recorded, at least in the record of if anyone took his, that question seriously, uh, you know, 230 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. So as history unfolded, though, we get a couple of events before 25th Amendment existed that kind of tested the waters of what this language might mean. Right. So the first one that we have is in 1841. William Harrison became the first president to die in office after catching pneumonia around the time of his inauguration, and then he passed away uh, one month later. His vice president, John Tyler, was named by Harrison's cabinet as the vice president acting president, but he assumed all the powers of the president and his official presidency and title was then confirmed by Congress. So this was pretty low stakes and, and not much controversy. So I've always enjoyed that story. Some people say, and I don't know if this is just a rumor, but it was because during his inaugural speech, he refused to wear a coat um, and it was kind of cold out. That's how he caught the pneumonia. And so his stubbornness is what you know caused him to lose his life and the presidency. But we see another one in 1893. Cleveland in a second term was diagnosed with a cancerous uh, tumor in his mouth. And fearing a panic at a time of uh, on the edge of economic depression, he decided to have it removed secretly. Mm. And so a number of his advisors schemed and announced a four-day fishing trip on a friend's yacht. I think they were going to go from New York up to uh, Cape Cod or something. And on that, that yacht, they brought a team of six doctors who performed the surgery. And apparently he was just in a chair with no real sanitary measures taken. And they put him under ether and not fully knocked him out, but definitely disoriented him. And they performed surgery on a yacht hidden from the American public. And so, Are you serious? Yeah. They actually didn't just have to remove the tumor. They ended up removing five teeth and half his jaw. And the country didn't know. So for ni- those 90 minutes, I believe they said he was under um, the influence of the ether, was he able to discharge his duties as president should the, the need have arisen? you know that's always been a question you know what's crazy though is like that i wonder if that was inspiration for what mills had for the russian president not in lethal agent but the one before that red red war right remember he had a tumor and he built this like secret hospital in the middle of russia and then like pretended he was on a bear trip and had like staged like pictures Mm. and then went under the wire like anyways that's that's funny though I didn't know that. Man, if we if we could ask Kyle about that, I'd love to ask. Just like Lethal Agent, I want to know how much did he predict or know about the COVID situation right, or the right. at that time the SARS situation. But I guess Red War and Lethal Agent were toying with this medical drama idea. Right. Every year they have like these virus meetings where like they bring in all the top epidemiologists, virologists, infectious disease people, and in October it's always in October, and they just do it's like a war games type thing. 
So they prompt you with this case study and then you have to roll with it. And so last October, it was a novel coronavirus out of Brazil, not China, but that had, we can talk about it when we talk about a, a lethal agent. But yeah, it was very interesting that this the past year they picked a very similar disease and, and they actually predicted like some of the, the elements that it has. So Wow. I, I wonder if they knew though, because October... I'm hearing reports that this thing might have been in China since the spring of last year. And it's like, I, I don't know how true they are scientifically, but it's like, were they playing that out knowing there was something bubbling? It was definitely, there's a lot of cases of pneumonia in China in like pneumonia mm -hmm. in China in December. So way before any time that, you know, we knew about it. So maybe we were just classifying them the wrong way, you know? Probably. We were, it'd be interesting when we go back and look at the, the data and see how many cases of, like, before we actually started diagnosing COVID, how many, what was the rise in pneumonia cases? So Yeah, we got to keep all this uh, in mind for lethal agent. Yeah, definitely. Another event was 1919 with President Woodrow Wilson after... He suffered a series of strokes, and he was already ignoring some other health concerns that were lingering, and he would never fully recover from any of this uh, during mm. his presidency. So at one point, his cabinet suggested that the VP assume presidential duties, and it was Edith, his wife, who, along with the doctors, really conspired to keep these health impairments from Congress and from the public at large. And so mostly through the efforts of... Edith Wilson, his uh, presidential power was kept intact. And even though he may not at all times been fully competent in the position and undergoing some serious health attacks, I mean, think about a stroke and how debilitating that could be physically and mentally, right. and your ability to communicate, yet he still had the full power of the presidency the entire time. Interesting. Right. And then in 1950s, we have Eisenhower, who he suffered heart problems. Um, and he wrote, actually wrote a confidential letter to his VP instructing him as the person to determine I, Eisenhower's inability to perform his duties, essentially saying like, listen, I have these problems. If I'm not doing it, you need to say, you know, say something. And when Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1955 and had surgery, then in 1956, the VP assumed some of his duties and presided over cabinet meetings but was never officially, um, you know, legally sworn in. And that VP was a relatively young Richard Nixon, uh, only 39 years old at the time. Yeah, I mean, legally, he didn't have the presidential powers of commander in chief. But if he's running the cabinet meetings, is he is he really calling the shots? Right. That's you interesting. Know, crazy to think Nixon calling the shots as early as the, the beginning, the 1950s <laughs> in an Eisenhower administration. Right. I mean, you could imagine that anyone who is suffering from dementia or something like that, especially in office, they would have to sort of, des you know, while they're still sane, designate someone to be like, you need to tell me if something's going on, right? You know, that I would hope people would, would do something like that. Yeah, you'd hope. But in 1967, the 25th Amendment will actually codify that as constitutional law, a process by which a sitting president can temporarily assign uh, duties to the next in line. And so, just to clarify something, the 25th Amendment does not alter or change the line of succession. That is the list of who takes over powers. That has continually shifted over time. There's been multiple constitutional amendments, the 12th and the 20th addressing that, and other pieces of legislation out of Congress, the earliest being in 1792. And so 
where we're at today, the order of uh, vice president, speaker of the house, president pro tem of the Senate. And then the next in line would be the different secretaries of the cabinet going in order of the oldest. So starting with state treasury and defense um, and the attorney general up to the newest cabinet positions such as uh, Homeland Security. But the 25th Amendment doesn't touch that. How how do you feel about the, the fact that it, it just goes in a in age of office, essentially, versus not in necessarily competence or not competence, but like, you know, you're going to have the secretary of housing and urban development. <laughs> agriculture. <laughs> a, a secretary of agriculture potentially become the president before Homeland Security would. I don't know. Not that it's ever going to get down, you know, I, unless you have like some sort of designated survivor type uh, situation, which is an well, interesting. Well, the designated survivor is often, you know, picked from this list because everyone on this list presumably is going to be at a state of the union, you know, right. in the Capitol building. I, I, I would love to see how that decision is made. I remember reading about this when that the show came out with Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about this and like one year – it was, oh, I'm blanking on the secretary, but it was like the secretary of, no, the one year it was like someone's aide. That's what it was. Wow. It was someone's aide was just selected. He was given secret service. And then literally as soon as the city, like they were in a hotel with secret service, as soon as state of, state of the union was over, boom, secret service just like left. They didn't say like, peace. Yeah. And that's how it works, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so the 25th Amendment doesn't uh, address the line of succession. That is pretty much set through other legislation. But let's get into the four sections of the 25th Amendment. And the first two are pretty straightforward. Right. So what do we have? We have section one. It reads, in the case of removal of the president from office or his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Boom. So this simply clarified an already longstanding procedure that like in 1963, the catalyst that sparked the need for this clarity was the assassination of JFK on November 23rd, 1963. Though there was initial confusion if the vice president, uh, LBJ at the time, who was also in the motorcade, if, if he was going to be you know, able to do it, but he was actually sworn in as president less than two hours later. So this one is you know pretty simple, straightforward. Yeah, and... Um... It even assumes that without being sworn in, if it is death or resignation, the vice president automatically has assumed the powers. The gotcha. swearing yep. in is more of a, a ceremony. ceremony yeah, exactly. LBJ was, was sworn in shortly thereafter, although he assumed the powers immediately at Kennedy's death. Right. Pretty clear. Section two, whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. That's also pretty straightforward. We've had that in 1973. So before Nixon resigned, the, the vice president under him resigned. And because of that, Gerald Ford was appointed and pretty quickly approved in both houses of Congress and became vice president. He was previously serving as House minority leader. So he was a player in Washington politics, but wasn't a major one as the, the Republicans were in the minority in the House at that point. So this is actually the first invocation of the 25th Amendment, right? Yeah, it was the first time it was invoked, but it wasn't as like, it wasn't sexy. It wasn't in the news, right? It was just appointing a vice president. So, okay, the 25th Amendment worked. He was sworn in and there we go. What made it a little interesting is Ford was never elected 
to the executive branch in any way. He was appointed and confirmed. And Nixon could have picked anybody, correct? Yes. Uh, just look as, at the text as right long there. As, as long as they were, they had to be confirmed, right? Yeah. Now, here's a question. I would assume you'd have to still have the criteria to qualify as president. You know, like, I wonder, could could you nominate a vice president who doesn't meet the 35 years old requirement or the residency requirement? I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I'm going to guess that like everything like has to super like the laws, other laws like also come into effect. Yeah, I would imagine you wouldn't get confirmed otherwise, right? Because yeah. you might assume the presidency and therefore that would be at odds with the requirements to be president. So that person would never get confirmed. That's interesting. So like, what if you're... I mean, is are there age limits on the Secretary of State? I I I don't know cabinet position limits like that. I I, I want to say no. I want to say they serve at the pleasure of the president as right. long as they get appointed so and like, confirmed. You could imagine that. I mean, what if we had a really young? Not that I don't know if we ever would, but what if we had a really young Secretary of Secretary, State or or even Speaker? Right, or really young Speaker of the House. That's interesting. Who had to assume duties? Right, I'd have to look that up. Yeah. Well. That'd be great if we can get an actual constitutional scholar to join us. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that would have been good. I'm, I'm sure we'll have some Twitter constitutional scholars. Yeah, there we go. After comments. this episode. <laughs> or some uh, hate mail. But uh, Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we're just, we're just excited about this. Though. We're just reading Transfer of Power and like, whoa, he says 25th Amendment and this happens. Yeah. You know, what's interesting going back to Gerald Ford, he was not elected into the, pres- into the executive branch. However, with Nixon's resignation... Gerald Ford in 1974 would become the president. And so we had a president who was never elected to the office. So pretty, and Ford was an Eagle Scout. Give a little rep to my Troop 303 in New York, where I'm an Eagle Scout from, but Gerald Ford was an Eagle Scout as well. Maybe why he didn't win a second term? <laughs> no, not because he wasn't was an Eagle uh, Scout. Okay. Be, anyway, but because you, he wasn't elected in the first place. Yes, yes. Sure, 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 yeah. sure. Yeah. No, I, I love my Eagle Scouts. I love you guys. <laughs> you and Krizan. Hey, so these are pretty straightforward, sections one and two. The third section gets a little dicey, and in a minute we're going to hear about the fourth section, which is incendiary. Yes. So section three is presidential declaration. So whenever the president transmits to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Yeah, so what Section 3 does is basically provide a tool or a mechanism by which the president can temporarily and willingly discharge their powers to the vice president. And it's as simple as a written statement that gets delivered to the president pro tem in the Senate and the Speaker of the House. And this whole time, the vice president only becomes the acting president. They are never sworn in or declared one of the presidents. They are just referred to as the acting president. But it also leaves open the right of return for the president to come back simply through another written declaration. Gotcha. Can you explain to us a little bit more about who the president pro tem is? Yeah. So the president pro tem comes up on the succession list, and it also comes up in the amendment here as someone who has to get notified. It's, it's just a Latin phrase, uh, present pro tempore, f- which comes from the Latin for the time being. So what that means is 
they're the president of the Senate because the, the real president of the Senate is the vice president. The vice, the vice president yeah. has authority to sit in and run the agenda of the Senate anytime. But, you know, they don't do that on a day-to-day <laughs> basis. It's impractical. And so there's an appointed senator who is a pro tem, meaning for the time being. Who is that elected by? Um, the president or his peers? It's a good question. I don't know. I believe it's just the whole Senate elects the president pro tem. So what it ends up usually being is a, is a high-ranking official in the majority party, right? But here's something else that happens is that pro tem doesn't often do the day-to-day business. They're more of a figurehead. Most of the senatorial sessions are delegated to the majority party leadership. So the other um, leadership serving on the committees, the chairs of the different committees. And gotcha. so the pro tem is, is almost like a symbolic title, but it does mean you're fourth in the line of succession for the president. It also means you could oversee the duties of running the, the agenda of the Senate. And currently it's uh, Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley. So yes, definitely somebody who's usually in the picture for a while. Interesting how there's, there's this nebulous... I guess random center that could, that is fourth in line for our succession. Again, a lot of these times, these things don't are are you know rarely invoked. So this is the third section. You could write a letter, relinquish your power. Most recently, that was invoked by both Reagan and George Bush W. Bush the younger in 2000 and 2007. Each Reagan and Bush were just undergoing anesthesia for medical reasons related to I think Bush had a colonoscopy and Reagan had some other procedure being done. They simply wrote their letters, and when they awoke or came out of the surgery, once all side effects have worn and they were fully back to feeling normal again, within a few hours, they provided a second written statement. I would imagine that we're already drafted, right? Right. The team of lawyers and attorney general. And as soon as they signed them and sent them to the speaker and the president pro tem in the Senate, Bush resumed duty. So once again, pretty low stakes, not very controversial, but- The controversy came around a different event with Reagan, the assassination attempt in 1981. The doctor who supervised Reagan's treatment, I believe he was brought to GW um, at GW University Hospital. There was time before he went under and there was some discussion, right? I'm sure things were crazy. It was an attempted presidential assassination. But the doctor does come out and say he regrets and thinks it was an error not having Reagan sign the letter and invoke Section 3 before he was put under who had the ability to discharge presidential powers. Was this a failure of the 25th, right? What if we had a life or death military decision? Who could have made that call? Right. So how does this all connect to transfer of power? So President Hayes, he doesn't willingly write a letter to transfer his duties during the novel. So the section three didn't apply and he couldn't simply provide a written statement to resume said duties. And even if he could, it was only a verbal communication because he was locked in the bunker. They didn't have, you know, that's the whole plot why Mitch has to, you know, turn off the the blockers and allow him to then be able to communicate with his chief of staff or secret service detail. But written declaration, could he have declared verbally over the radio his intent? And could the written declaration have been written by someone else? By someone else and delivered to the House and the Senate. It's still written although it's not written by the president, it's written by someone else under the command of the president verbally. Right. Yeah, I don't know. There's some sort of legal, legalese. Does he, like, does he have to write it and then sign it himself? I mean, uh, the president probably doesn't sign every document. It's never been tried in the Supreme Court, so there is no answer. Right? Sure. Like, right. That's how most constitutional issues work themselves out is 
it has to happen first, right? We have to reach the boiling point. And it's later on that, you know, the third branch, we have a mechanism of the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land ultimately says if proceedings were constitutional or not and get to interpret the text. I don't know. You know, the whole idea of the president not being able to communicate and therefore, you know, not or not be able to determine when he has duties, like this brings up probably the most controversial part of the amendment, and that is the fourth. And like, who can determine if and when a president is unable to discharge his duties as the commander in chief? So in section four, it reads, whenever the vice president and majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. So that sentence, either the principal officers of the executive department or such other body as Congress may by law provide, that, that's a, a little sticky situation because, especially if it's a different party controls both houses of the Congress, right? Yeah, yeah. So that that's the issue of, Basically, the, this fourth section was created in extreme circumstances for an external party, not the president himself, but another party to be able to remove his powers legally. And there's two groups that have to be involved in that decision. The one, is, the first one is the vice president. So just to start up, you're never going to be able to invoke section four without the support of the vice president declaring the current leader is unfit for duty unfit to command and discharge the powers of the office. Once the vice president feels that way and is willing to move forward, they must approach, quote, principal officers of the executive departments. That has been generally understood as the cabinet. Right. And so you would need a majority of the secretaries of the executive branch departments. But you're right, this line, other bodies that Congress may by law provide, leaves open, the vice president could ask Congress to define a different group and Congress would have complete leverage on defining and narrowing what that group of quote principal officers of the executive departments are. So theoretically a vice president plus a willing Congress could appoint some group. And as long as a majority of that group agree, the president is unfit for command, they write the letter. And once that letter is delivered to the speaker of the house and the president pro tem in the Senate, the president's duties are immediately removed. Interesting. That's uh, exactly the plot from season seven of Homeland, <laughs> where the president goes insane. Yeah. Yep. But the question is, how do you legally declare that insanity, and how do you legally take powers away, citing as the Constitution originally said, inability or disability? Who determines it? Right. But Chris, it's it's stickier than that. Right. So the president can then write his own declaration arguing, I, I do have my full capacity and ability to discharge the office. I am not disabled in any way. And as long as he provides a written declaration that no inability exists, he can resume powers of the office. And, and the text of the 25th does say, when the president transmits the letter, quote, he shall resume the powers and duties of the office. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> now, let's go one step further. There is an appeal to the appeal. There's a counter appeal. <laughs> the vice president and the cabinet or that body appointed by Congress can challenge that. And they have four days 
to provide another written statement that they still believe the president is unable to discharge the powers and office uh, and duties of the office. It's unclear on during those four days they have to counter the appeal, who's calling the shots. And then, so ultimately, the 25th gets so complex to say who has the decision, who has the ultimate say. Well, it, it says Congress. It says, thereby, Congress shall decide the issue, assembling within 48 hours. Congress has to get together, and they're given, once they assembled, another 21 days to make their decision. And if two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate agree that the president is unable to discharge the duties, the matter is settled. So it takes a supermajority, two-thirds of both houses, right. and basically it's put to rest. And the vice president assumes all duties and can even be sworn in. That's a long time to not have a, yeah. you know, uh, like you're probably, have, especially, I can only think about the situation where this would be happening, right? right. You would probably have a president that's freaking insane. <laughs> And then, like he's, it's like, oh, it's a coup essentially by his government. And, but the gov- but he's allowed to like be there for twenty one or for a month essentially. Like, what, what? The, this makes no sense. It's not a coup because it's legal, right? That's the point of the twenty first. Right. Try, but yeah. it's it's like an acting coup. Yeah. Yeah. Who has power during this window? You're right. You got to assume it's something crazy going on. And what if that's the decision to respond to an attack? What if that's a decision to use our nuclear arsenal? What if that's the decision to I don't know unleash chaos domestically using the military and overrule posse comitatus and all the other laws. Like if an executive is willing to go that far, should the mechanism to remove them be this murky? No, no, it should be. First of all, you lost me when the president could just immediately send a letter saying, no, I'm good. (laughs) And then the vice president coming back and be like, wait, no, you're not. Here's the thing. It's generally understood that when the president writes that appeal letter, it's generally understood that most likely, no, they don't just resume duties. It would have to go to Congress to then try to get those that two-thirds of votes. Okay. But there's a whole process there. And the question is, the text says he shall resume duties just by writing the letter. So if a president wanted to challenge that loose interpretation and wanted to vehemently argue, I wrote my letter saying I'm good. I got commander-in-chief authority back. Would that give them enough time to make a decision? Well, I assume, yeah, I, I, if, if this is actually happening, I, I hope that they would act faster than four days to first write the letter back and then two days to assemble, two days to assemble, and then a, a 21 days to actually decide, you know, if, you know, heaven forbid this was to ever happen, you know, stuff we read in are these novels that we, we love so much where you have these crazy presidents that want to do these crazy things. I would hope that they would act a lot faster. Yeah. Well, it's not that theoretical because the 25th Amendment has come up more recently than you'd think. You remember Omarosa uh, from The Apprentice? Yeah. She was a senior White House aide in what, 20, it was 2017, I want to say. She came out and said, it was right when um, that Fire and Fury book came out by Michael Wolf. Well, in the book, he claimed people inside the administration are throwing around the term 25th Amendment and trying to get traction for it. And then Omarosa came out in 2018 after she left the White House. And she said, there were times when the president was unhinged. They even had a text chain, hashtag TFA, 25th Amendment. Oh my God. <laughs> in, in messages, they were like jokingly playing around with, he's so crazy today, or his decision-making is off today, or he's yelling at people. And they would use the hashtag flippantly, hashtag TFA, like threatening to invoke 
the 25th amendment. I, I never heard of anything concrete that, you know, steps that were taken. Right. But, um, I mean, are we really that far from a constitutional crisis of this magnitude that we're, we're discussing? Mm, that's a little outside the scope of our uh, podcast, but. <laughs> the online trolls recently talking about, you know, the current president using two hands to drink a cup of water. They're like, people are trying to cite medical reasons that that is a diagnosis of dementia. And I'm like, I have no idea about that. For him, did you hear about like him walking down the ramp slowly and it's like, oh, he has health problems. Like, oh my God. But here's the thing. The 25th Amendment isn't about a president has health problems. That's expected for any person, right? But it is a tool for the vice president to lead a charge of true incapacity, an incapacitated president. And that's probably where the 25th would never apply to a Trump presidency. The 25th Amendment is clear on this. It would a Section 4 can only be invoked by the vice president, who then works with the cabinet. And so- right. I don't think we'll ever see a movement in this administration on the 25th simply because it would need the leadership of the vice president. Right. And again, I could only see this ever happening if we had a president that went insane in different ways. (laughs) So slightly different in the eighties, you know, Reagan was under a lot of pressure with the Iran Contra scandal. And shortly before that, you know, the bombing in Beirut and the invasion of Granada. And so people said he got so dejected, (laughs) he would watch movies for hours on end uh he would walk around and go into meetings fall asleep or be completely dazed like his mind was still back in hollywood and he was the gipper there was actual a, a report done uh his chief of staff tasked two aides with writing a report about the effects of the iran contra scandal on the white house and the report did mention a possible invocation of the 25th section four to remove the president for inability to discharge his duties because he was sleeping in meetings, watching movies all day and not answering questions. You know, that never, that never went anywhere. The chief of staff shut that down. But a few years after he left the presidency and Reagan was one of the oldest presidents, I believe at the time might've been the oldest president, some worried that of Alzheimer's setting in, which he was diagnosed a short couple of years after leaving the office, right. some people wondered if the 25th would have applied to a president that is showing symptoms of Alzheimer's. And as long as the vice president agrees with that argument and evidence, they could move on it and bring it to the cabinet. So that was another time in somewhat recent history that um, the 25th was thrown around. Right. Yeah, this is, regardless of where, you know, you anyone listening to this podcast, you know, comes down on our current presidency or presidencies of the past the fact that this section four is unclear is kind of i don't know a little unsettling that there's not i like definition in my life and i like because the first three parts are so concrete and then there's just this fourth article that allows for these you know potential crazy scenarios yeah i'm glad we have that mechanism should we reach that capacity i just I'm, I'm like you, I like things to be concrete and procedural. And so I, I wonder how that procedure would play out. And I think the answer is, we just don't know because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right. But you know, who's pretty um, serious about constitutional history is President Hayes. <laughs> Back yes, to transfer power. he is. He, he's in the bunker and he gets on the radio again, thanks to the heroics of rap. And both the director of the CIA, Thomas Stansfield, and General Flood, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, say, we're taking orders from you now. What do you want? And Hayes says, if I remember my constitution correctly, we have some procedural issues to take care of. We need to inform both the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House that I am able to resume my duties. 
technically, unless we do that, the transfer of power is not, not complete. complete. That's good writing by Vince because we just discussed that you have to have a letter. Yeah, no, that's great. I, the Vince you know, and Kyle um, both do their research really well and they add, that's the details of, of these books that make them nice. Not just throwing things out there like I'm taking power. It's like adding that line in. It's very simple, but yet it's it's powerful to show that you know what you're talking about. Oh, lines like that make me go nuts. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it's like I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I re I read just History a, a porn paragraph. I just read a paragraph of that, and like, whoa, what would happen? Would they have to actually write this letter? And could the president in the bunker over the radio give a command to come rescue him? Um, I kind of like Stansfield and Flood's response. They say, you're the president. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. So are they, are they committing a coup there? Because Vice President Baxter is the acting president with Commander-in-Chief Powers, now his CIA director and uh, joint, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs is saying, I'm not going to take orders from the acting president. I'm going to take orders from the real president, even though legally he shouldn't have those powers. Well, we talked about this briefly in White House Down, right? The the bad guy who is the acting president wants to just bomb the White House to kill Jamie Foxx or President Sawyer. Ultimately, the, the pilot decides not to, but it's like, I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> you know, was that, is that pilot, the pilot in the wrong in that case? Like, you know, it's, it's interesting. And it's like, who would have the pardon power after the fact to, you know, because that's one of the, the, principal responsibilities of the the president of, right could you pardon that general who defied your orders and yeah. went with the other guy exactly it's all a constitutional issue that i'm glad authors like vince flynn in the book are playing with and the people who made the movie are addressing because that's what art literature and you know movies should do for us is question these things and and give us the what if scenarios so that we're we're more prepared definitely definitely yeah i mean back to to President Hayes, though, there was no letter. So was the acting president Baxter? Should he have even assumed those duties without the letter? So did Hayes have authority this whole time, even though he's sitting in a bunker and nobody can listen? Does he still have the presidential powers? He never officially triggered Section 3. Right. I'm guessing, but like, like you said, even if with Reagan, how he didn't do it when he was under, but still legally, the vice president would have, would have been in charge. So in this situation, that's that's what happened. They can't reach him. They don't know if he's essentially, I guess they're just assuming he's dead, right? Well, in the movies, they knew that President Aaron Eckhart was alive, but definitely under duress. And right. the Constitution does say inability to discharge the duties. So I think being tied up in a bunker with a terrorist constitutes that in unable to discharge your duties. Yeah. In White House Down, though, you didn't have that certainty where. Jamie Foxx was still going about the White House. They were still talking to him and Channing Tatum's character over the radio. And President Hayes, he's not under duress because he's not physically assaulted. He's in a bunker. True. But right. there's no communication. So each of these is taking on a slightly different bent on uh, what the 25th Amendment would look like when push comes to shove. Right. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah, that was, I don't know. He... You're great at this stuff, and I, I appreciate when you geek out in, in your teacher mode and, and educate me a little bit on uh, history. Wasn't ever my, I'm a scientist, so. I mean, there's something for everybody in these books. After Third Option in July, when we read Lethal Agent in August by Kyle Mills, there's so much in there I want to know from you about infectious diseases yeah. and the response to them. And uh, we need a biologist on hand for that book. I'm glad we got one. Yeah. You know what else a historian does is cite your sources. So just real quick, 
a lot of the information uh, we presented today comes from the National Constitution Center at constitutioncenter.org. Great museum in Philly. If you haven't been, I'm sure you've been, Chris. Oh, it's, yeah, it's awesome. You're a Philly guy. And then some of the historical examples came from history.com and not always the best source with the best information, uh, but they do have a great page on the 25th Amendment. Nice. So what are we doing next episode, Mike? Well, I just finished reading The Third Option. Have you finished it up yet? I'm almost there. Again, almost honestly. There. All right. Well, we are going to be recording our take on The Third Option, which is our second book with Mitch Rapp. Believe it or not, Transfer of Power was the first Mitch Rapp book. So we are going to drop our two-part series on the 1st of July. And please, as always, uh, subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at our wonderful website, uh, MitchRabPod.com. Or you can reach out to us using our Twitter handle, at MitchRabPod. We always like hearing from people on Twitter. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.